0: Welcome, explorers, and thank you for being part of the adventure. Today, our guest is Sarah Westbrook, and she's the author of Trauma Bonded, A True Story of Navigating Attachment Forged in Complex PTSD. That's a, that's a lot to get our head around. So can you welcome aboard, actually, and um, can you tell us a bit about your story and why you wrote your book?
1: Absolutely. Um, and yes, it is a mouthful. The, the title is a, is a mouthful. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to capture everything that was in the book in in a sentence, and I think we did. But it's a mouthful. Um, so yeah, I um, I grew up in a home where I experienced a great deal of emotional neglect. Uh, My father has been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. And when I was growing up, I, of course, just thought that was normal. I thought every kid was going through the same things that I was going through. And it wasn't until I was an adult when my husband and I adopted our second son, who was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, when I recognized that what I was dealing with in my home with my son was obviously not the norm, Um, but when I would go to the doctors and whatnot, I was reacting in such a way that really wasn't healthy. And so I was exaggerating his symptoms, which they didn't need to be exaggerated. They were already so severe that me exaggerating them just made me not very credible. And so as I worked with a counselor on how to become more honest What my experience was, was when I was more honest, when I was less reactive, then the medical providers believed what was going on, and then my son started to get better. We started to get answers for what he needed. So he struggled with a medical condition. He was severely allergic to everything, and he would have these episodes where he would not be breathing um, in a way that... Could sustain life for very long, so his oxygen saturation levels would drop below eighty percent, and we couldn't figure out why he was having these difficulties with breathing. Um, we almost lost him a couple of times. He had to be on a ventilator once, um, and because I was so reactive, the doctors—I I mean, they were—they were being led on a wild goose chase because I was exaggerating the symptoms in such a way that they could not get an accurate diagnosis and so once i became honest with the help of my counselor that opened up this world of let's talk about your trauma let's talk about how that has influenced you throughout your life and it is and it is true that that complex ptsd it
0: it if you want to use the word manifest but it acts out you you know you you think you're suppressing the trauma but it's acting out in all these other ways and if you're not got some sort of self-discernment, you can't tell that
1: that is actually causing you harm. Absolutely. Well, and again, I didn't even necessarily realize I was as traumatized as I was. So just discovering that this, you know, what was so normal for me growing up. So things like my father started blaming me for the problems in his and my mom's relationship when I was two. Um, And I couldn't figure out, you know, why and so when i was little i i believed it was my fault and then as i got older i was like well i know that's not my fault but why is he blaming me but i still believed that some of the other things that had gone on in my family were all my fault because that's that's part of that narcissistic piece and so yes it it manifests in these really toxic ways that are very off-putting for other people like it it definitely got in the way of my ability to have healthy attachments with my in-laws or with my peer group because I wasn't, I wasn't believable. I was acting in ways that made everybody uncomfortable. And so I had to first learn how to attach to myself. I had to learn how to be honest with myself, um, and, and just recognize how that chronic emotional neglect and then being blamed for things throughout my entire life that, that I wasn't doing things that made absolutely no sense. How that impacts. Yeah, you. I like how you said um, yes. I had to learn to attach to myself, because when we do
0: have trauma, traumatic ch- childhoods, and and it and it may not be you know people think trauma and they think one big event or <laughs> you know, um, you know, our heads go straight to sexual abuse and that kind of thing, but it can be just bullying, you know, consistent bullying, name calling, and that's enough to traumatize you. And then you sort of disassociate from the reality of yourself because you're trying to, na- well, I like navigate all the the different emotions that you're having that you don't understand.
1: You're too young to actually unpack. Yeah, absolutely. So, I I lived my childhood trying to stay out of trouble, and and yeah. not. I mean, people are going to relate to that, and they're like, oh well, yeah, me too. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is. I stayed out of mom's way because it didn't matter if I did it the way I was told or the way I wasn't told. It was never good enough. I was never, I I don't remember getting very many, you know, out of girls. It was was very toxic. My mom was a yeller. Um, And so everything from I, I couldn't find my shoes to I wasn't eating fast enough to I did the dishes, but one of them wasn't cleaned enough. It was this explosive moment of Sarah can never do anything right. And so my mom couldn't stand up to my dad. And then I think her outlet for her for her own abuse, which we talk about in, in the book Trauma Bonded, I talk a little bit about some of the things that my mother was going through at the time at the hands of my father. She She needed an outlet. And unfortunately, I was it because... I grew up in a very strict fundamental religious society. I grew up, um, I was born and raised Mormon. And you couldn't speak out negatively about the quote unquote priesthood holder, which was the male in the relationship without the entire community telling you, you need to be grateful for what he's doing. Look, he's a good provider. It could be worse, all of these other things. So my mom didn't have a safe community to unpack her trauma with. And so her trauma manifested in always being aggravated, always being grumpy. You know, I wonder how often she was punished um, or shamed or bullied by my dad because the kids weren't clean enough, good enough, doing the right thing enough. It was this constant tug and pull in the home of trying to be enough. But being perpetually inadequate in all areas of our lives. Yeah, hard place to be, isn't it? Especially for a child who can't yeah. understand the context of life yet,
0: and, and especially surrounded by everything that's telling you that you're you're the problem. Yes, you know, like if you speak up, you're the problem. Mm-hmm. If you if you're trying to work out a solution, you're the problem. Bringing up that there is a problem.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. So
0: in so when you're ha, ha, so you would have had to be indoctrinated into the the Mormon mm-hmm. beliefs and cult-like oh, yeah. situations. So you've had you've had to really unpack a lot to come back to your own individuality, I would presume.
1: Yes, ab- absolutely. So yep. Mormonism is a religion that tells you who you are and give you all of the steps that you need to take to get back to heaven. And I actually saw a little article on Facebook, I don't know, last week, and it was titled something like the 613 rules to get back to heaven according to Mormonism. And as I read through them, I only got to 150 before I had to stop reading because I was so overwhelmed. But as I went through that list, I went, Yeah. This is this is what I believed. Like it was this overwhelming to do list, in order to please, not only my earthly father, but now my heavenly father. This this higher power, and I'm I'm very grateful. Um, so I'm a mental health counselor in the United States. I'm a licensed professional counselor, which means I have a master's degree in mental health counseling. Um, I'm very grateful for my degree. Because what happened for me was as I was sitting with clients, helping them on their pathway to healing, um, because I was a quote-unquote Mormon counselor, the Mormon church would send me people in their congregations that they felt needed quote-unquote fixing for for whatever reason. And they would come into my clinic and we would only get about six sessions in. So in the United States, that's about six hours worth of counseling services an hour a week so over 6 weeks and then they would stall out and they couldn't get any better we couldn't get we couldn't get past anything and the and the biggest barrier was the spiritual healing and so in my field I look at spiritual healing as the way that we connect with other living things in meaningful ways so that's with the environment you know earth plants animals other humans other any anything that's alive how we connect with that and that's that's how I would define spiritual health in, in my field of expertise. And I was noticing these deficits in all of my clients that were Mormon. They could not seem to push past that and heal in the same way that my non-Mormon clients were able to heal. And I'm using the same exact evidence-based treatments for both populations. And I sought consultation from another Professional. And that was really for me when I started to see Mormonism was not leading me or my clients to a place of enlightenment, to a place of health. Um, It was impeding their abilities to have healthy marriages, to communicate in healthy ways, to be fully honest and vulnerable with a partner, which you absolutely need in order to have a fulfilled healthy relationship and there, there was this like religious blockage that would not allow them to cross into a place of vulnerability so that they could heal their traumas. And so as I was working with clients, inevitably I'm working on myself. I think that's, I think every person in behavioral health or spiritual healing, all of that, they're like, yes, the more I help to heal others, the more I heal myself as well and so it 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 became this very contrasting black and white um viewpoint where i've i've got my my mormon clients on one hand and my non-mormon clients on the other and as i'm doing my own internal research on my efficacy as a provider i'm seeing stall out pretty consistently along that high fundamental religious belief system and people who are thriving and healing and you know, thriving after marital affairs, which is a difficult thing to work through in my field. And yet the majority of my clients who were not LDS were healing and would report, you know, at this point in my career, I've got five-year reports from clients that I saw five years ago that completed treatment five years ago that say, Sarah, this was, you You were the greatest thing for us. We are doing great. We've never been better. And we've maintained that and then my LDS clients were like, yeah, we're we're still struggling with the same things over and over and over again. And so it was just this, as I compared and contrast that, I really started to question my religious beliefs because I wanted, at first it was, what's wrong with the culture that is causing this stall out? And then that turned into, okay, no, what's wrong with the teachings and the culture that is stopping this progress? And as I Discovered it bit by bit, you know, little teeny pieces at a time to unlock myself I, I became a much healthier person, and subsequently as i've i've as I've done that, my husband and I were able to heal from our from my affair, so I had an affair, which is in my book um i I talk about how the childhood trauma um impacted my relationship with my spouse and how that made me very vulnerable for a, a marital affair and and then I had the marital affair and what happened after that's all outlined in the book but as I shed mormonism and then as my husband has since shed mormonism our ability to heal from that in our own lives has has just gotten so much better so
0: so what what have you noticed about yourself since you have Left Mormonism is that like what 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 is the the major fundamental things that you go oh that is black and white a
1: major change in how I perceive myself and the world. Um, When I was in Mormonism, I was constantly questioning my worthiness. You know, am I worthy of unconditional love? Um, I felt like I deserved all the bad things that happened to me. So things like I struggled with infertility. Um, in my life, my, I've got my husband and I have seven children. Um, okay. <laughs> and our first thought of that problem, <laughs> a, well, we're Mormon and, and Mormons <laughs> have a belief that you need to have as many children as you can so that you go absolutely insane and continue to depend on the Mormon church for survival. Now I'm being a little bit sarcastic. Um, <laughs> no, it's so, so my oldest two and my youngest two, they are adopted and, Three of my adopted children have some special needs. Um, I've got two children that are on the autism spectrum um, and whatnot. But I I remember in Mormonism thinking, oh, you must have some infertility because you had premarital sex when you were in high school, which, again, when we talk about traumas, you can read about that one in in the book. Um, I, I questioned, you know, oh, I cheated on my husband. Therefore, I deserve this emotional distance that we have for Years and years and years, there was no allowance for me to just be human. And since I've shed the, the Mormon confines, you know, I, I like to talk about it as a bubble, um, the Mormon. But when my bubble popped, it was excruciating. There was that faith transition, a lot of questioning what was real and what wasn't. Because in Mormonism, I was told that I knew It was the only true church and that I needed to tell others that I knew it was the only true church, even though there wasn't any evidence for that. You know, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of cognitive bias. We've got a lot of this, this, you know, one way of viewing the world and anything outside of the Mormon view was toxic or wrong or anti or bad or evil. And so as I was going on that journey, there was a lot of, oh, I've read this thing that's not published by the church the mormon church that's critical of the mormon church oh my goodness i've let satan into my life and that must be why i'm feeling uncomfortable rather than understanding no you're just challenging previously held belief systems and you don't really know yet what to do with this new information and you know as i learn to lean into that discomfort and and reason it out using scientific based methods and what felt good or resonated in, inside of me differently that I actually became a, a much better, stronger, wiser human, um, which I think manifested most in the way I was raising my, my children. Um, yeah, that's good.
0: Yeah, because it makes a difference when you are parenting and you see some of the toxic traits mm-hmm. starting to come out in yourself which you generally swore you would never do. Right. And, and because it's so ingrained, we do do it. So it, it, it then then is an opportunity to go, hang on, that's not where I want to be. And breaking down indoctrinations is huge and it doesn't, and that's why, you know, even when people are bullied and things like that, they become indoctrinated beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so they're, they're all really hard to break down but essential if you're going to feel the truth of yourself. And I, I love that you started looking for what you resonate with because that's what I, I tell my clients. It's like, does that resonate with you? And if they say yes, it's like, right, now tell me why. Mm-hmm. You know, like don't you don't, don't, don't leave it like that. Like let yourself explore it. That's why I call it spiritual explorers because the more you explore something and go in there and, and go, I agree with this, I disagree with this, but I'm, here's my reasons why, mm-hmm. the greater your understanding of yourself. And, you know, in one form or another, we're all unpacking our childhood his- histories, our former relationship histories, whether that's partner or friends or et cetera. And that's how we can find our star.
1: Yeah. I so, love that you use spiritual. What did you say? You said spiritual. Explorer. Explorer. I was going to say wander, and I was like, that wasn't the right word. Spiritual explorer. I, in, in my practice, I use the word st- remaining curious so that resonates yes. with you. What resonates with you? How is that impacting your life? Let's stay curious so that way rather than saying that resonates with me, therefore it is quote unquote true, we use more flexible language so that way as life moves on, if something else comes up that's a better fit for us we can allow that resonation. I don't even know if that's a real word, but I'm gonna use it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like
1: it. <laughs> Sarah makes up I use it <laughs> all the time. Um, but the ability to allow other things to come in and impact us in positive ways or for us to be able to say, what worked for me three years ago isn't working for me right now, and that's okay. Yeah. So that yeah. we have this lifelong growth. You know, my my motto in um, my counseling practice is learn, grow, become, and and it's a, it's a constant cycle. We're always learning, we're always yeah. growing, and we're always doing our best to become our most authentic true self. And so that's yeah. – I love that. I, I might steal that. Yeah. Spiritual – That's order. fine.
0: You go for it. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting because I use reconnect, which is really, you know, what you're saying is attaching to yourself, understanding yourself. And recover because we've all got these wounds that you know they hide in the shadows. They hide in in the places where we don't want to look because we don't want to revisit the pain. But once we revisit the pain and really, really unpack it, and find what we can learn from it, I, I always say, look at them as opportunities. All of a sudden, that recovery process opens doors right. to to your own understanding. Not you know necessarily extreme life changes, but just to your own understanding. And then rejuvenate, rejuvenate your zest for your curiosity, your sense of self, Mm -hmm. you know, what life's providing you. And I think one of the things we forget is the trauma bonded. A lot of the time we're trauma bonded to ideals and beliefs. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize how much trauma they're actually creating, you know, creating us. If you're if you're living your whole life thinking, I'm a problem, there's something wrong with me, I can't get this right, hey, I'm not gonna get through heaven's doors. You know they're telling me I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing this wrong. So everything fundamentally around you is telling
1: you you're a failure. Yeah. Well, in in Mormonism, what I was taught was sexual sin is second only to cold blooded murder. So I <laughs> had yeah. See, she's laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't grow I up. I was with 16. It. <laughs> that was a very serious thing. Now I'm 42, and I'm going to laugh with you, but. That is what I was taught. And so one of the stories that is the main theme in in my book is I was 16 when I became sexually active and my parents found out and they were very unhappy. And then you see this long-term narcissistic abuse. And then in 2004, um, due to very (laughs) unconventional, like a statistical impossibility and yet it was possible, I end up 10 doors down the street from my high school sweetheart. Thank you, United States Army. Um, Like I said, statistical improbability. And he and I had an affair. And so when I'm 16, I commit the sin second in severity, according to Mormonism. And then when I'm 23, I do it again. And then when I'm like 36, 37, 38, I did it again. And so here I've got this pattern of why do I keep going back to this partner despite the fact that it is incredibly harmful to my family, to to my husband, who he and I have been married for 25 years now, um, to my children, um, and to this this gentleman as well, and to his family and and to me. And and it's just all of it and i i knew that i knew better it wasn't what i necessarily wanted but i couldn't stay away why was that and and that is because that trauma bond attaches us in really unhealthy ways to people who were who we were either harmed by harmed with or that we caused harm to and and i think that you know, when you look up trauma bonded right now or trauma bonds on, on Google, you're going to see more of a, an abuser and a, and a victim relationship. And you're going to see a lot of similarities with things like Stockholm syndrome, where the, you know, the kidnapped is in love with the kidnapper and, Mm -hmm. and trauma bonds are a lot more complex than that. It's not just the abused and the abusee's relationship. It infiltrates Every relationship that you will have in the future, and in in some ways, in beautiful, glorious ways, and in others, in horrifically toxic ways, and everything in between.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things that isn't talked about enough is that when you are trauma bonded to to say your history, you know what I mean, your belief system, and all the rest of it, and you're you know basically can break it down to that sense of victimhood, you know. Then that becomes very familiar to you. Mm-hmm. So the illusion is that kind of you know you can go off and meet a new partner, and, and people can come out of traumatic experiences and then go and you know end up with a tra- um, another partner who traumatizes them. And it's because it's familiar to you that your radar's not going off. You know, someone that hasn't had that experience, they don't they last five seconds with people like that. They're like, I'm not wasting my time mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. Where people that have been in those kind of relationships, narcissistic parents and all that are training you to tolerate all these different kinds of behavior that you think is normal. And and a lot of the time you're actually trauma bond to the way that you survive it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're bonded to this sense of survival. So you keep acting that out. Yeah. And you and it doesn't make sense to you why you keep gravitating to those types of people, those types of experiences, right But yeah, it's 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 the it's to do with our inner compass and and radar. yeah, but we we think we think that trauma bonding is just someone coming into our life and and treating us badly. and then, you know we we try to make it work. But yeah, it's very
1: complex. yes, so. in my field of study, you know, we call it from the neuroscience perspective, our brain hates change. We, we don't like it. Anything where there's going to be change, even though we're like, "Ooh, I want things to change. As soon as we're confronted with the change, our amygdala, which is the survival center of our brain, will activate and send off all of these warning bells like, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. It means it's uncomfortable. And because our brain's goal is to get as comfortable as possible and stay as comfortable as possible at all times, we resist things that are unfamiliar because being treated like a a, a princess, we'll say, you know, that the hope of little girls everywhere is that they'll find a partner that treats them like a princess or a queen and, you know, maybe not everybody everywhere, but I would say most of us grow up with this desire to be spoiled and loved unconditionally but then when we get it, it feels wrong. And it's because like for, in my case, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I thrived in an unhealthy environment because that's what I learned how to do as a, as a child. Um, and so when I meet people who are, and, and I wouldn't say anymore, I, I think that I've unpacked that. And, and now moving forward, I'm, I'm definitely, I've got my radar going on for everybody except yeah except the partner yeah. who I share trauma with which is that high school sweetheart he and I experienced that trauma together and yeah. I don't have any red flags for him and I probably need to have some red flags <laughs> for him but I have to recognize that that's part of the that's part of the trauma bond but yes healthy relationships feel "quote unquote bad or uncomfortable because they're not familiar because it's new" and when i'm working with clients on you know when when i've got clients that come in that say why do i keep marrying the same type of person over and over and over again i say you got to stick with the with the ones that make you a little bit uncomfortable but that don't threaten your safety so a, a threat to your safety that's a no go but yeah. if you've got this pattern of i'm always attracted and and getting into relationships with unhealthy people well then you've got to expose your brain to healthy people. So it becomes familiar so that your brain says, Oh, I like this. This is safe. This is good. And then as you do that, generally you're able to break that, that cycle.
0: Yeah, it is a cycle. And, and the brilliant part of what you said there too, is that when you're on the other side of that, all of a sudden those red flags are easy to see, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so the fog lifts. So, so it's, it's because you understand it and that you've got something to, you know, we work a lot by comparison, mm-hmm. you know, like we, we, we kind of look at something and then if we can see something different, then we can understand there's a comparison to it. Mm-hmm. If you've got nothing, if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family of any sort, and then you've ended up in a dysfunctional relationship of any sort, then it's a continuation of that cycle. So you've got nothing to compare it with. What what generally happens is you start watching somebody else and going, "Hang on, they're not doing okay." So you, you pick up bits and pieces like that. But when you're on the other side of that, because your understanding's expanded, all of a sudden you know the fog lifts and you can see it. So yes, I love and that, it, and it's interesting. I I seen something um the other day on Facebook, and and someone had put up, "Why are we having so many toxic relationships?" Why is it that our communication is breaking down to a point or our expectations are lowering to a point that, you know, we're creating a nice environment for these toxic relationships to consistently roll around?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, I think it's so, because the, our, our world is hurting. There's There's so much trauma on a large scale in the world. I mean... And there has been for a while. You know, we look at things like world wars and, you know, local wars and terrorist attacks. I know that the United States, um, we, we can kind of track certain patterns and changes in behavior after the 9-11 attacks on the United States. And, and I'm talking about the statistics here in the States, but also after COVID, we can see this this different trajectory of behavioral patterns, and a lot of it is really difficult and toxic. Well, because there wasn't as much of a break. If you were in an in a toxic relationship during COVID, and you were ground in place, you didn't get the opportunity to go to work and have other people treat you differently, or go to school, or just go for a walk and and take a break. You you got like concentrated toxicity. And I believe that we're going to be seeing the outcome of that for, for many generations. It's, it's not going to just go away because, you know, the, the cliche is hurt, hurt people hurt people. And yeah, if, if you've been in that toxic, concentrated environment during the years of COVID, we're going to see the long-term effect for decades. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to ask you the big question. What do you think humanity needs to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve?
1: I think that we need to understand that judgment impedes healing, judgment of ourselves, judgment of others. It impedes healing and that unconditional positive regard or unconditional love and a lack of judgment about why you or somebody else is behaving in a way is the key to unlocking curiosity. It's the key to allowing yourself to see things differently. It's the key to allowing yourself to let go of a lot of the hurt that we've experienced so that we can heal and move forward in new ways. I love that answer. Thank
0: you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good answer because it, it is interesting that all of us are confronted with people's judgment,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and there's a an, there's an inbuilt fear of it. You know, we're we're her- we're herd animals, and we like to feel that we're accepted into the herd. Right. So we fear that we're going to be judged, and ostracized, and and that's how a lot of cults survive. Yeah. Because they're using that fear you know can't speak up can't can't say the truth of what you can see people like
1: you on the outside yes that's right
0: (laughs) no you heard right (laughs) yeah so and and we've all got it you know we've all you know you would see it in your practice as well that fear of judgment that fear of what other people are going to say um that fear of being humiliated by somebody else's judgment and you know i I recently had an experience where someone did not know me, had never met me, didn't know any of my work, no understanding of who I was, and I, I walked straight into their prejudgment of me. And I knew in that moment that that wasn't going to change. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter what I did, didn't matter what I said. This person had already assessed me based on nothing except their own judgment. So it couldn't it wouldn't have mattered if it was me or someone else somebody else was going to have exactly the same experience. it wasn't it wasn't just me. It's this is what this person does. And I thought, yeah. you have no idea how
1: limiting that is making you right in in yeah. all areas of your life, and then the other yeah. pieces that we judge ourselves. you know I, re- I remember because of the indoctrination and and my ideals and because of social standards, there was a part of me that when I cheated on my husband where I was like, I'm not worthy to be a wife ever again. You know, the the cliches of once you cheat, you're all, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater. And you broke your husband. And wow, what's wrong with your husband? He didn't leave you. And all of these things. Well, I, I started to tell myself those things. And when I was able to step out and stop judging myself and I could see all of the contextual things at play, that's when I was able to pick myself up and say, no, I am a very good wife. I am very loyal. I'm very honest. I'm a good mother. I am worth being treated well. I am worth being loved. And I'm going to stay with communities and friends that have those same ideals because I don't want to surround myself with people who think less of me because I responded badly a a few times. Um, So not only is it shedding The judgment of others, you know, we need to stop judging others and we need to be able to shed the judgment of others, but I also have to learn to quit judging myself. I need to start learning how to listen to what's going on for me and and working to understand why I'm behaving in a way that goes against my morals or my values so that way I can shift and change rather than shame and judge. So, So... Yeah,
0: definitely. Because the shaming and judging, that's what bonds you to your trauma.
1: It does. You know, regardless of what your trauma is. You can let the, the bond, you can break that bond when you hit a place that you understand why it's there in the first place. Yeah. And that you most likely are doing the absolute best you know how to do at any given moment. And so as you gain new tools, generally you do better. And that's the natural, normal human process. So yes, I love that you can shed your trauma bonds through yeah. through this method. Yes,
0: yeah, definitely. And and it's and it's interesting is that the the fundamental point there is that you've got to understand what what your trauma was, how it's affected you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you don't understand those two fundamental things, you know, may, maybe not to the full depth. But at least understand the basics of that, otherwise, you don't go anywhere.
1: right. So I had to. Yeah. I had to understand that my father had been traumatized in his childhood before I was able to let go of how horrible he showed up for me in my life. Like I, I couldn't let go of the pain of being a victim of my father's narcissistic abuse. Until I was able to say, well, what led to him functioning in such a harmful way? Oh, I don't need to understand all of the pieces, but to go, wow, my father was a victim of chronic childhood abuse. Was he a Mormon? Did he grow up in a Mormon family too? Um, Semi. I'm going to say his parents were Mormon, but he was never really active. He went to the Mormon church with his mother. I'm sorry, with his grandmother, but his mother and his father were not active Orthodox Mormons, so he had it kind of in the background. My my grandmother and I'll I'll share a little bit of her story. She's deceased, so I feel comfortable um, sharing. She had a struggled with sexual addiction, and my father's parents divorced when he was nine, um, and my grandmother went on to have a new boyfriend in the home. I'm going to say about every 6 to 12 weeks of all of the years that my dad was growing up. And so unfortunately, many of those men were physically abusive, sexually abusive, um, mm-hmm. abusive to his mother. He that The amount of abuse and trauma he saw as a child far surpasses mine. And so one of the things that he's actually said to me that has been very harmful for me is, well, you have no idea how good you have it. Because he was comparing his childhood to mine. Now, he is correct. He did a much better job raising me than his mother did him. And his mother would not allow his father to be a part of the life. And that was back, um, so let's see, 60s, 70s, um, and 80s. In the United States, men did not have real rights to their children. Like if, if the woman said, this is what the guy is doing, the man was... Here's money, and and my grandmother was very successful at pushing my grandfather out of his children's lives. I think the only one that he had a relationship with after the divorce was his oldest daughter, who was old enough to understand a little bit better what was, what was going on, but my, my father was not able to understand what was going on. So he did better with me than my grandmother did with him, for sure. But his best was still toxic and his yeah. best st- was still harmful in a way that has that long-lasting impact. And I think really where he struggled with that is that he never took the responsibility to face his own demons in order to get to a place where he could do better. I know he's tried as he's in his you know 60s, 70s now – He's tried, but it's it's very difficult. And, and he is now very orthodox Mormon. So I'm, I'm certain that a lot of that Mormon structure, people who struggle with a lot of trauma crave structure. They crave a to-do yeah. list. It's like if I just do these things, then I will be safe. I will be good. I will be happy. I will have joy. I have a sure place in heaven. And unfortunately, yeah. the Mormon church creates that. But when they create that to-do list, it stops growth because yeah. it's limited. It's very limited. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a relationship with your parents now, or you? Um, my no, um, I do not have a relationship with my father. Um, the I had to terminate my relationship with my father when he started to pass the abuse on to my daughters. Um, okay, yeah. So at at that yeah. point, I, I tried before that. My dot, my dad does very good with small children who agree with him and think he is king of the universe. He was an amazing grandfather to my children when they were very young. Um, He started to really struggle with, so my oldest daughter is now 15. So he started to struggle with her when she turned 11 and started to have, you know, normal preteen sass and attitude and talking. I like
0: that you're smiling when you're saying that. Normal teenage sass.
1: Normal teenage sass. <laughs> um, and then my four-year-old, so she was four at the time. She's nine now. Um, She's on the autism spectrum. And she swiped a chip off of her brother's plate, uh, just a tortilla chip off of her brother's plate and popped it in her mouth. And my dad flew out of his recliner, jammed his finger down her throat to pull that chip out, and he bloodied her lip. And when I addressed that with him, in the beginning, I I yelled at him. And then afterwards, when I tried to address it with him, it just got uglier and uglier and uglier to the point where we tried to do some family counseling and some healing. And that counselor ended up saying, Sarah, this is it's just going to continue to get worse. And then my husband and I put a lot of thought and contemplation and pondered it quite a bit. And we were like, yeah, it's time to go ahead and cut contact. And unfortunately, my mother and my relationship was collateral damage. And that because when you're married to a narcissist and you're talking to somebody who is the quote unquote enemy, he would bully her consistently. And I had to say, mom, I cannot participate in your bullying anymore. I can't talk to you. If I know that as soon as we hang up the phone, you then have to deal with dad. Um, And so I have not had a relationship with my parents in over a year now. Um,
0: yeah, which isn't an easy thing to do. you know what I mean? like it's even um, abusive parents it there's something so ingrained in us mm-hmm. that you know we we want we want those relationships. So that's not that's not an easy thing that you decided to do but,
1: but um, it has it is about breaking the cycle for the next generation too. and it has kept my babies safe. my, my children yeah. are are doing much better now that they don't have that pressure to perform the way that they have to to be loved by my father and I don't think I realized just how hard that was on them until I said I'm not going to talk to him anymore and it was like all of my children just had this huge sigh of relief and and that was really hard my oldest and my father had a very close relationship until the last couple of years when my father was trying to get my son to choose between his mother, me, or or his grandfather. And my son was like, my mom's not like that. My mom's not like that. Papa, why are you saying this? Like he was, he was raised in an environment where it was safe to disagree with the authority figure. And he did. And, and I think that that's negatively impacted his relationship with my father. He does not have much contact. He has not cut contact. He's an adult. So I'm gonna, yeah. you know, he gets to manage that the way he needs to and I will respect his boundaries. Um, so he hasn't cut he, ob- he obviously has a secure
0: foundation within himself mm-hmm. to know, to know when to, you
1: know, disregard. Yes, what, and he does um, not, grandpa. he doesn't do drama. Yeah. He doesn't pick sides. That's not, he doesn't want yeah. any of that. And the more he's pushed into that, the more he says, I'm limiting this contact because that's not healthy. And so I'm very, I'm very proud of my oldest for his ability to, to do that and to stand on his feet and set those boundaries at the age of, I mean, he, he's been doing it since he was about 20. Um, yeah. so I, I just, he's 22 now. And so to watch that growth in him that I didn't achieve until I was in my thirties, I'm just very, very proud of him. He's a good kid. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, beautiful parenting. Well, I, well, I'd like to take think credit. Think so. <laughs> <laughs> I know
1: I've <laughs> made mistakes
0: because one of the things too with narcissism is that they're always in competition. They're always in competition.
1: Always. Everything yeah. and and my bro- my siblings and I we were pitted against each other yeah. in competition. And so when I cut my parents out I also lost my siblings because yeah. the, it's it's always it's everybody against Sarah. I'm the you know I'm the family scapegoat. I'm the black sheep of the family. And it's it's been very fascinating. Like when the last contact I had with my brother, I've only seen my brother maybe, maybe one week out of the last 25 years. And he told me my book was full of lies. And I just said, Have you read it? And he said, No, but dad says it is, so it is. And I just like, Okay. There's that, there's that competition. You cannot have a relationship with Sarah. And my father, who is portrayed as Dave, that's a name for him, as yeah. Dave in the book. You cannot have a relationship with both of us because if you try, Dave will pester you until you feel the same way he does about Sarah. And so it's been it's been very difficult. Um, my husband was in the United States Army. Um, he did that to, to go to medical school, and he's a nurse anesthetist and um, provides anesthesia care um for surgery and and laboring mothers. And um it I'm grateful for my army family. It's the family that I chose. It's the family that rallied around me when I was growing up as an adult. Because I didn't get to grow up as a child. I had to grow up as an adult. Um and and that family is everything to me. I, I drop I will drop my life for my chosen army family the way that most people do. Or most people would like to do for their families of origin.
0: That's lovely, that's lovely. So i I find it fascinating. so if if you know tra- trauma bonding, if if we, we're going to make it our last statement about it, what is it that you want people to know that you think they
1: don't know about what tra- trauma bonding is? Okay um, I can't do it in a statement. I'll give you a paragraph. Or two <laughs> um, <laughs> how I <talk> um, <laughs> number one, it's completely normal. Um, significant trauma. And and Lorraine, you said earlier that a lot of people will look at trauma as like this great big thing car accidents, war, sexual abuse, um, chronic micro traumas, um, trauma that you share with somebody else. So, like in my book, you read the story about myself and my high school sweetheart. We were both my father's victims. We were pulled apart in very horrific ways. That created a bond of friendship where he and I are constantly trying to take care of each other that ends up translating into harming our our relationships, our our relationships with our with our partners um, that we ended up marrying. Um, so number one, it's it's normal. It shows up in ways. That can be healthy. A lot of us, we bond in very healthy ways because of the trauma that we've had, especially if we've been allowed the opportunity to heal together. And I'm still going to call that a trauma bond because there's a comprehension and understanding of the experience that nobody else has that gives you this experiential expertise regarding a situation. And so I see that in. People who have survived natural disasters together, um, you know. So, so a lot of the people that survived, so in the states, Hurricane Katrina um, or the the Joplin, Missouri tornadoes, where many people lost everything together, they are going to share a trauma bond that can show up in in good and in bad ways. Um, and that what, all- one of
0: the negatives with that is if you have people that have you know. Um, bonded over a trauma and then one person starts to really heal and come out of the trauma the other person can feel so threatened by mm-hmm. that that you can have this where you know where it's Nelly attacking the person that's yeah. moving out generally the person that's healing is trying to bring the other person along and and is trying to impart what they're understanding and all the rest of it but you do get that a lot and that can re-traumatize the person that's actually doing the work to heal as well it's it's just one of those things right, that
1: does occur quite a lot because sometimes the healing inspires both or 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 the party yeah. that was traumatized together to heal together and yeah. other times somebody's just not ready for it and and you're correct it's like how dare you leave me behind we have this bond i would say that um for me as I try to understand trauma bonds, I recognize that it can be very visceral. Um, It can be almost feral and that it often leaves us with a feeling of obligation towards another person that can be self-destructive when we lose our objectivity. Um, That's a key point. If you recognize that you're in an unhealthy cycle in your trauma bond, I would say that you almost always, if not always, I don't like all-inclusive words very often, but usually you need somebody that is not part of the trauma bonded relationship to help pull you out of that. And I believe that help for trauma bonds comes in all forms. I know that I I don't know what the behavioral health climate is there for you, Lorraine, in, in Australia, but here in the United States, there's a, oh, you have to have a license, you have to have certifications, you have to have training. And I'm here to say that you have to have complete trust in the person that you are confiding in. And that's really the only, and that, and that that person has to honor your trust. And if you have those two components, the the training and the methodology is, is nowhere near as important. I see people heal in beautiful ways with life coaches, with spiritual healers, with counselors, with doctors, with friends, you know, the next door neighbor, teachers, mentors. Like it, you don't have to have specific training. You have to trust the person and you have to honor the trust of the person. Yes. You've got those two things then yeah. their objectivity can be very healing. You also need them. And if
0: you are trusted mm-hmm.
1: for someone's trauma. Correct. You know,
0: make sure you absolutely respect that because they've let you into sacred ground. Yes. That's how I look at it. They yes. let you into the inner sanctum, which they may not have another person in there. So, you know, never use it for gossip, never use it for entertainment fodder or any of that kind mm-hmm. of thing. That is um, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Well, I think it's time for Flip the Book. Okay. So, would you like book one, two, or three? I'm going to say three. Three. Okay. So, that is actually Breaking Free from the Chains of Silence. <clears throat> Sorry. And we only use the back of this book. This book was written for pedophilic abuse victims because ab- about 70% of my clientele for about 15 years were victims. Okay. And so I documented what they were dealing with. So at the back of it, we actually have a place where it talks about the core essence of your soul. Um, So these are essences like kindness, care. So could you give me a number from 189
1: to 215? 192.
0: You've got four paragraphs to pick from.
1: Which one would you like? Paragraph two.
0: Paragraph two. Okay, so this comes under the heading of caring. So the essence of caring. So that's very fundamental within your soul, right, It's part of your the core of your being. Caring means you embrace taking responsibility for nurturing the exploration of your own natural significance and the significance of others. This facilitates being committed to respecting truth and the free will of other souls which allows your acceptance of freedom to grow. Caring invites grace for yourself as you unshackle the chains of oppression that caused you to neglect yourself. Care creates an intention to develop an awareness of your soul.
1: I think that's a beautiful one for you. Thank you. I think that that is the description of what I did with my book. I think that that is, <laughs> you're telling me the same things that my editor has told me um, over and over as to what the goal is and how this book has helped me on an individual level um, to become who I'm wanting to become. So yes, it's very fitting for me.
0: Very it personal. Very you. fitting. It takes a lot of care to even put your story out there. You know, you you know it does. It means that you care for others. and because what you're saying is I'm
1: going to put this out there, and it may help you, yeah. my my goal was to normalize. It's okay to talk about the ugly part of you. so when i when I was in content edits, my content editor told me, you know, so I was I was the protagonist, and she goes, Sarah, I really don't like your protagonist right now. And it's really important to make sure that the reader likes the protagonist and i said i can't i wasn't likable at that moment and if i make me likable i'm lying and it's not going to come off as real i have i have to show the ugly part of me as well and once my content editor understood that that was my goal that my goal was to say you can mess up your life you can do and make horrible mistakes that harm others, and you can talk about it, and you can heal from it, and you can become somebody else. You can become who you want to be. These are learning experiences on your, on your journey. They do not define you. That's what I want my reader to take away from my book. I want them to be able to say, Hey, I had bad things happen to me. Look, I made a mistake. Look, I'm still accountable for that. Even though these bad things happen for me, I still hold accountability for that. And I've got to, I've got to put in how my trauma showed up for me, and how my personality showed up for me, and how my characteristics showed up for me, and and my part and my own choices in this. And then, as I own those choices, then I can heal. And and that's yeah. what I, I wanted my reader to see that it's okay to be ugly and still be of value. That was my goal.
0: Oh, that's great because it is, you know, um, caring means you embrace taking responsibility for nurturing the exploration of your own natural significance. That's that's it in a nutshell is that you just, yeah, honestly turning up, taking responsibility and they are just experiences. And, and beneath, beneath all that trauma was the person that you are now, Right. you know what i mean it's not those like that wasn't moments, there
1: those few moments yeah were excruciating for for me for my husband for for my affair partner for his wife it was excruciating and i wish i could have learned the lessons in life that that i gained with without that harm but i but i couldn't have and and i think all of us so all of us who are still living, my, my affair partner's wife passed away um, from breast cancer, which is just heartbreaking. Um, but I think for all of us, we're stronger, better humans with a lot more empathy and a lot more love for the rest of the world because because of our experiences. So beautiful. thank you for that. That's lovely.
0: Yeah. Th- thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. S- so have I. It's
1: been, it's been an honor and a pleasure.